0: Flip to Romans 9, verse 14 through 29 is our passage. Romans 9, potters and pots. And uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to follow along. So make sure you're, you're following along there in Romans 9, and uh, we'll get to work. Romans 9, let's pray. Our Father in God, we gather here before your throne, asking you to open our hearts and our minds as we open up your word. Help us to understand, help us to trust you in all things. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So our our study today is called Potters and Pots for a reason that you'll see shortly. But keep in mind that Paul is continuing his thought from the previous section. He makes several points along the way. And as we saw last time, God's purpose of election in history proves that his word does not fail. So God's decisive choosing in history, his actions in history... Um, prove that his word doesn't fail. What he has done with choosing Israel, Abraham, uh, all the way, Jacob, Isaac, all of them, into even um, Joseph, and all the way into the prophets. David was chosen. David was not supposed to be king. He was a small little, a wee little man, kind of like Zacchaeus, I guess. Uh, but David was chosen to be king. That's who God chose because man looks at the outward, God looks at the heart. So God chooses in history, he, he sovereignly orchestrates and does things in history, and that should tell us that his word never fails. Which also means, incidentally, as we're going to discuss today, we can't charge God with injustice. No one can charge God with being an unjust God which is again, what he covers here. So remember that the apostle Paul, he, he rehearses and traces Israel's history. He traces the high points, the low points, all of it, in order to prove what God is doing in his day, in his time, through the work of Jesus the Messiah. And we should know that that's nothing that's outside of the normal covenantal patterns of history. Uh, you, you look at America today, and we we shouldn't think oh gee let's get off the planet and and escape you should say wow god is bringing his judgment and he's and he's given it he's it's good and hard right now fear is amok and we deserve it because we continue to kill children in the womb we continue to meddle in, in foreign wars we continue to uh you know prop up immorality and you know this is what you get when you do that sort of thing So let's work through the passage and I'm going to read as I go and comment as I go so you can just follow along uh, that way. Let's start there in verse 14. He writes in verse 14, What shall we say then? What shall we say then? In light of what I just said, he says about God's election, God's predestination with the patriarchs. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is there injustice on God's part? If God chose Jacob, and not Esau, before they were even born, thus proving the unfailing word of God, does this mean that God is unjust? Does this mean that God plays favorites? Because why pick Jacob and not Esau? Esau was the firstborn. Why? God seems to be unjust. Paul says, by no means. By no means. Meginomai. It's a very powerful phrase in Greek. By no means. No way. You might even say, heck no, or another... um, word in there. Uh, not on your best day, buddy. God forbid. Verse, uh, verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So Paul moves from the patriarchs to discuss Moses and the Exodus. He's telling the history of Israel. And this quotation is directly from ex- Exodus 33, 19. Now, not to insult your inte- intelligence, but Exodus thirty-three nineteen 19 comes after Exodus chapter 32. And Exodus 32 is this wonderful incident, the famous golden calf incident. <laughs> Not wonderful at all, very inglorious we shall say. And the golden calf debacle, that's what we can call it. <laughs> this, the golden calf debacle came if you recall in your Bibles, at the very same time that God was ratifying his covenant with with Israel. Okay, so Moses, (laughs) when when God initiates his covenantal love to his people, bringing them in to this covenant, what is Israel doing? They're fornicating with false gods. (laughs) So remember, Moses was up on the mountain with God. The the clouds were up on the mountain. Um, Israel wasn't even to touch the mountain lest they die. So while that is happening, this covenant is being made. They're down there for just five minutes, slipping headlong into idolatry. And God says, hey, look, you just got to the top of the mountain. I should just go destroy them because they're already screwing up. (laughs) So crazy picture there in the Old Testament. So Paul's point in referencing this is that Israel's status with God depends solely on God and his mercy and his compassion. So none of us in this room as Christians who confess the Lordship of Christ should ever say, boy, this is great that God chose me. I'm, I'm really wonderful and I have a great sense of humor and um, I like long walks on the beach. <laughs> you know, I'm just this great person and I'm so glad that God chose me because of my greatness. And you laugh, we laugh at that, but that's the boasting that Israel had done that he's going to dismantle in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So if God is going to carry forth his sovereign plan to redeem the world, that's God's intention is to redeem the world, redeem the nations in history, not cast them aside into the dustbin of history, but to bring redemption, it's going if that's going to happen, it's going to be on his terms with his mercy. And uh, anyone have a King James version here? <laughs> anyone want to admit that? No, uh, It's okay. In the King James, it's literally running. It's not based upon him who runs. The Greek word literally means somebody who's running. He says, all of this is not on human will. It's not on human running. It's not on human doing. None of this, election and um, grace and covenantal grace that we've been given, none of it is based on human effort. It's on God who has mercy. God has mercy to us. Um, None of us want God to give us justice (laughs) because it would not go well for us. We want God to give us compassion. We want him to give us mercy. So Paul interjects another proof text in verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh... For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Israel was guilty during the covenant, uh, the golden calf incident. They were guilty of idolatry. But Pharaoh is no better. Pharaoh is just as guilty. God could have destroyed Israel in that moment. It's By the way, it's one of my favorite... There's a lot of humor in the Bible, if we'll just take ourselves less seriously, we'll find it. But if you recall, Aaron's excuse to the golden calf is basically, oh, we just threw our jewelry and gold in there and out came this calf. Oops. No, you have to make it. It doesn't just come out as a golden calf. And so greatest excuse in history, I think. (laughs) Funniest one, too. So Israel was clearly guilty. Pharaoh was guilty. God could have destroyed Israel in that moment. He would have been just, right? God could could wipe the planet clean with a flood. Again, he won't, but but if he did, he would be just in doing so. Uh, There would be no injustice other than the fact that he promised not to do it, and now he's being inconsistent, but that's a different philosophical problem. So God could have done it. He could have destroyed... Pharaoh in one fell swoop of his power, but God, quote, made him to stand. That's what the word means. He, he raised him up. He, he made Pharaoh to stand so that God's power could be on full display, which incidentally is a side mark here. Tyrants are allowed to exist for the purpose of displaying God's power. So the, the, the tyranny you see around you is essentially God allowing it to be the case, because he's going to show his great power. What greater power could there be than America being brought to its knees so that it can glorify God? It can and will happen. So the, the point of the Pharaoh text from Exodus 9.16 is twofold. One, God's delay in judgment is so that nations will always reach the full measure of their sins. God's, God's delay in judging America, just so we all are all clear, is so that we can reach the full measure of our sins apparently 65 million plus infants isn't enough. God is patient, and his patience is so that that cup of his wrath can be full. And as it stands right now, apparently it's not full enough, which is actually uh, concerning (laughs) on multiple levels. But it's also here because God's deliverance can be seen as this very beautiful thing that it is. So God, even in the midst of the worst of tyrannies, think Pharaoh, right? Even in the worst of tyrannies... even Rome, Roman subjugation, in the worst of all of it, even in the most crazy despotism we can think of, think of Mao's great leap forward in China, or um, Pol Pot in in Cambodia, or uh, Stalin in Russia, think of Hitler in Germany, like the list is endless. God somehow in that uses it for a greater glory that we don't fully understand. Verse 18, So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is a difficult passage. Very difficult. Because it takes your mouth and does this. (laughs) You can't say anything. He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God is sovereign over every human heart, and as a consequence of that sovereignty, Every human heart must give an account. He's sovereign over every human heart, and as a consequence of that sovereignty, every human heart must give an account to Him. The telling of the story of Israel and God's sovereign prerogative to show mercy or harden hearts, as it were, is all of part of God's plan in dealing with His kinsmen according to the flesh, who have rejected Jesus. God has hardened people. Um, When I think of God's sovereignty... I think of me when I was a kid who I would pin my brother to the ground and grab his hand and, you know, why are you smacking yourself? Why are you smacking yourself? And uh, that's God, what he did to Pharaoh, essentially. Because <laughs> the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his heart, but it also says that God hardened his heart, which is right. Yes, both are right. But it's almost like he, he sort of made him think he was this big, bad bully, and God just pinned him down and kept smacking him in the face with his own hand. That's God's sovereignty. <laughs> Laughable, but you know, true nonetheless. So the hardening of Israel, that's what Paul's dealing with in this section. The hardening of Israel is part of God's plan to rescue Israel, just like it was with Pharaoh. So when you look at America and this mess we're in, just know that God's plan of redemption is, a, is there. It's, he's still going to use it in some in, In his mind, in his sovereignty, somehow this lockdown insanity and mask Nazi insanity is part of his plan to redeem America. And it may get worse, and it may need to get worse, so that the cup's full and God can destroy it. And what will he rebuild in it? Christendom. And that's what he's promised in Scripture. So the gospel must go to the nations... Everything that's happening in Paul's day and our day today is part of the plan. It's on God who hardens. God shows mercy. It's his compassion, his prerogative to do that when he pleases and how he pleases. Now, some of you, maybe you, I don't know, someone might respond rather frustratingly. Look at verse 19. Well, you will say to me, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Huh. If God is sovereign and literally everything falls on him as his responsibility, and here I am and I don't have his mercy, but I have a hardened heart because I don't believe in Jesus, you know, his imaginary discussion partner here, how can he judge me? How could God judge me? This is an echo of Romans 3 6 through 8. It's not my fault, is it? Why am I still being condemned? If it's all in God's responsibility to show mercy and he's not showing mercy to people like Governor Northam, then is it his fault? How, how could he possibly, How could it possibly be his fault? And this is probably a verse you should have underlined and maybe even tattooed, I don't know, but uh, <laughs> Paul responds as the prophets always responded. Look at verse 20, but who are you, O man? to answer back to God. Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Israel has no right for an appeal, no answer back to God, just like Job. Remember when, when God said to Job, where were you when I made the foundations of the earth? Do tell. Where were you? The worst sort of hypocrisy is the sort of human rebellion that sets up a standard for God and demands that he acquiesce to our demands. That's the worst rank hypocrisy that can be out there. And if you've spent five minutes on a college campus today talking with college students, a bunch of little whiny socialists, they're, they're, this, is the, this is the hypocrisy. They'll, they'll say things like, well, Christianity is full of hypocrites. And I, usually the response, yeah. You're right. And you are too, and you're welcome to join us. Um, (laughs) But this worst hypocrisy is to A, say that God doesn't exist, and then go and say, well, if he does, this is what he should be like. This is what he should be like. He should function on my terms and my way. And of course, acquiesce to our requirements and demands. Can a pot Talk back to the potter, he says? No, it's even absurd to postulate such a scenario that a, that a piece of clay that's an inanimate object can mouth off to the potter. Verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay? Follow his logic here. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Huh. I need to explain this because there's a lot of confusion on this, all right? Paul isn't merely discussing Israel's purpose with Israel, uh, excuse me, God's purpose with Israel, but he's also making sure to clarify God's purposes through them as well. God has a plan for them. God intends to accomplish something grand, something grand through their partial hardening. Um, Aaron read from Jeremiah 18. Uh, echoing places like Jeremiah 18, also places like Isaiah 29, 16. He references this imagery of a pot and a potter. Here's the potter, here's the clay. This uh, visual you know, um, illustration. And he didn't just make it up. It's, a, it's in the Old Testament. Paul illustrates the problem of Israel using this same prophetic tenor as the great prophets of Israel. When Israel failed... And their calling to be the light to the world the people who were chosen to be vessels of mercy carrying forth god's new creation purposes for the nations god brought judgment what happens when a church disobeys 2020 okay that's what happens so god uses the judgment and the prophets likened israel's rebellion like Isaiah uses this Jeremiah, he saw their rebellion, and he likened it to being a lump of clay challenging the potter's authority and selfishly demanding to be made into something else. When the whiny socialist says, uh, you know, I don't believe in God, and if God exists, this is what he should be like, because that's what I think. They are a whiny pot. They are a mouthy little pot who's you know, a piece of clay who is uh, frustrated with the potter. They want to be something other than what they are. And we know what they can be because they're made in the image of God. They can be restored, forgiven, have salvation. Um, but, but, but when you're mouthing off to the potter, you, you, you've got a problem. And to be clear, because this passage is often misunderstood, the lump of clay is the human race and God's election towards the goal of worldwide redemption. The clay he's speaking of, he has one lump for honorable use and one lump for dishonorable use. Think of it all the way back in Genesis. The seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman. God can do what he wants with the clay. He has the prerogative. He's the potter. He can do it. He has the right to do so. But this lump of clay is God's purposes of election, this molding and massaging of a people for the purpose of worldwide redemption. So we're speaking at an individual level, we're speaking at a corporate level as well. And I think if you take seriously Paul's echoing of the Old Testament prophets, there's a a helpful striking of the balance there. So God has a right to shape and mold as he sees fit in order to accomplish whatever he sees fit. It's his prerogative. He's the potter. The The pots are still in the molding stage. They haven't gone in the oven to harden and then they get smashed on the floor. They're still being molded, he says. There's still hope for Israel, as the next two chapters will describe. Look at verses 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory? So as creator and judge, God is right and he is just to display his attributes and his power in the world. One of his attributes is wrath. He's going to display it. He has shown himself to be patient with the pharaohs of the world. He's shown himself to be patient with the Ruth Bader Ginsburgs of the world. He has shown himself to be patient to his own wayward people as well. So he conquered Pharaoh. He disciplined Israel by sending them into exile, if you recall redemptive history. But he did all of that to display his glory. And if Israel was to be altogether condemned at any point in history, then the Messiah would have never come. We would all be dead in our sins. God is patient. He is good. God's patience is for his purposes of cosmic redemption. When you look at the world around you, God is being patient. Why is he being patient? Because he wants to redeem the place. Verse 24, to what end? Even us whom he called has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. In other words, Israel's gone off the reservation problem would require God to remake and remold Israel, a new Israel, a new people of God, these vessels of glory made from the same human lump of clay, including Jews and Gentiles. So think of Paul's perplexing issue is we have unbelieving Jews, very few believe the gospel, very few, compared to the rest. We have unbelieving Jews, the Messiah has come, we have this massive problem, Gentiles are flooding in, the gospel's going to the world, people are becoming Christians, they're covenanting with God through baptism. What about Israel? Their hardened hearts is a problem. And so he says, well, that's because God is taking the lump, and he's making a new Israel, a new people of God. So that's how we should understand that. Verse 25 and 26. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. In the very same place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. When God brings judgment, he always provides redemption. When God brings judgment, he always provides redemption. The call of the gospel means Jews and Gentiles who weren't God's people would become God's people. So again, salvation, deliverance depends on God who has mercy. And because we aren't crying out to God and asking for mercy, the cup remains filling up to the top. And he proves this point again there at 27 through 29. He quotes Isaiah 10 and Isaiah 28 and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not let us, left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So God always God always sees to it that the world is put back together. But Israel's problem, and I think it's the church's same problem today, they can't. We can't boast in ourselves and claim this national national privilege. Um, This this sort of. Let's go back to the good old days. When were the, the good old days? When the humanist founding fathers hijacked the Constitution, removed religious tests for oaths for office, and oh, the whole slavery thing. When when was the good old days? Uh, when, when was that? And, and not that we want to go back to that, but we want to learn from those things and build in, into a better, brighter future. That's the goal. But we can't boast in ourselves. We can't claim this like national privilege of, well, we're Americans and we're the church in America and, and we have it all together. That's the boasting that happens and God will remove it. So God always has a remnant. He always has a remnant, a minority who who will always accomplish what God intends to accomplish. History does not get changed by the majorities. It doesn't. So what's happening with a small remnant of repentant Jews who have believed the gospel is what God said would always happen. And and listen, God deals plainly in his judgments. He deals plainly in his judgments. There is no obfuscating when it comes to God's judgments. It's not like unclear. If this, then this. That's the covenantal paradigm. You reap what you sow. And we keep sowing the butchering of children and uh, this humanistic law order in our society. What do you think we're going to get? It's an easy thing. You commit the sin and God says you're going to have to eat its putrid fruit. You're just going to have to eat it. It's you reap what you sow. So God's judgment, he deals plainly. God's judgment against a rebellious people is righteous. God's judgment is deserved. But his greater plan for universal healing goes on unhindered. So let's apply just a few things here. I think there are several things we could take away from a passage like this, and perhaps most notable to me, what stands out to me, is the fact that God the potter always has a right over human clay pots. God the potter always has sovereign rights over his human clay pots. There's never going to be a situation on this earth where men can claim God to be unjust. Those who raise their objections to, I can't possibly believe in your God... Because, blank, what are we doing? We're calling God unjust. I can't believe that God would flood the earth like that and kill all those people. I can't believe that he would exterminate the Canaanites. You know, the Canaanite uh, uh, genocide, people pejoratively call it. I can't believe God would do that. What are they saying? God's unjust. He has no sovereign right over his clay as the potter. That's what they're saying. See, God is justice, and God only, therefore, does what is just. Because he himself is perfectly righteous and good, there's nothing that he does that is outside the bounds of his own attribute of being good. To claim otherwise is to be a mouthy little pot, and no one likes dishes that talk back. (laughs) On top of all of this, God's word affirms both the predestinating sovereignty of God and the responsibility of humans to obey him. So if you're um, maybe new to the discussion on predestination, just know that there's a theological belief called compatibilism. And that's what reformed theology teaches where it's not like, um, I think somebody said to Spurgeon, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility? And Spurgeon says, I don't have to reconcile friends. They're not enemies. They go together. God is sovereign and he orchestrates every movement of every atom and, and, and proton and neutron and electron. He, he's in over that. But are we responsible too? And do we have a, some semblance of a choice of free will? Of course. We're, but the problem is we're free to only do what we're, uh, is consistent with our nature. And if we're sinners without redemption, we'll only do that consistently. But if we have a new heart, thanks to the gospel, what will we do? We will obey him. That's consistent with that. But compatibilism believes, yes, the sovereignty of God over everything. We also affirm human responsibility in that. So predestination is about the inner workings of history. It's about the inner workings of history. God is the cause of all things, which means there's no ultimate sense in which humans are permitted to be self-determining autonomists. <laughs> we, we proclaim the sovereignty of God. So if you're going to be a mouthy little pot, just know that you're not permitted to do that. Who are you, oh man, to answer back to God? God has the exclusive right to be inexhaustibly sovereign over every single detail of life. So left to themselves, pots will always try to find meaning apart from God. They will always try to find meaning apart from God. This was a problem in the Garden of Eden, and frankly, it's an ongoing problem today. Everyone's trying to find meaning apart from God. Our nation right now can be best described as a bunch of little clamoring pots, bellyaching and complaining to God about why they're not the potter. This sort of autonomy, it's obtuse and it's unhelpful. But the hardening of our nation that we see right now is part of the plan of God. Don't think that it's happening and God's unconcerned or not involved in it. He's the one doing it. He's the one doing it. People laugh at the post-millennial position. Uh, Some of us in here have experienced that. They're citing us to be um, misguided optimists to the bitter end. Well, in one sense, yeah, we're optimists to the bitter end because the bitter end isn't the end, for one. But then they'll throw the label, well, you're ignorant, You're ignorant. Look at the world. How could you possibly believe in gospel victory right now? How is that possible? How could you be be that ignorant? I mean, look. Look at the newspaper headlines. And then our response is, well, actually, the Word of God does not fail. That's our answer. The Word of God does not fail. It does not return void. God promises what He promises, and He achieves what He says He's going to achieve. There's no inconsistency in the triune Godhead. So how could one look at the disheveled mess we're in and think that God is going to win? And and again, my reply is, silence, pot, how could you not? How could you not believe in the victory of the gospel? See, the crumbling of our nation at the national and political level is because God is doing the hardening. If we only look at the hardening, we will find ourselves stuck in the ditch of despair. But if we consider the Bible we'll find that there's still hope. There is always a remnant, and God always wins out. He uses the judgment. The potter has the right over the clay every single day, 24-7, 365. And perhaps the most audacious thing we could say about this passage lies in the fact that God molds, God hardens, but God also shapes and God softens. And men will either take self-governing responsibility for themselves, or they will talk back to the potter, and they will face his judgment. So we are not puppets. People look at a passage like this, well, we're, we're basically puppets, and God is the master puppeteer, and he's just pulling strings, and we're all doing this, and you know some of us are doing that, and, and we have no control over ourselves. Nonsense. God has given you self-governing authority under his word. We are flesh and blood image bearers. And yet, despite our penchant for rebellion and general mouthiness towards God, God has shown himself to be quite patient with us. Quite patient. And he's also glorious. So this rope leash that God has given us is either going to be a a source of joy, a source of gratitude in your life, or it will become the noose of our own demise. And we see what we are choosing as a nation right now. And I think right now we have a Christian church that needs to make some decisions. Will the clay repent and trust the sovereignty of the potter God? Or will the clay assert itself as the potter? Will the church today uh, repent of its uh, abortion apathy? Will the church today repent for hiding its gospel light under a basket? Will we repent of that? See, if the potter's purpose is to maximize his vessels of glory for the honorable use of winning the nations to the gospel, then when will we stop mouthing off to God? When will we cease lamenting the conditions of the world and instead pick up a shovel and start making it better? When will we stop complaining and bellyaching like we don't have time to do this or that, we don't have time to do the righteous thing, we don't have time to, to pray with our kids, or we don't have time to work on our marriage, or we don't have time to, to, to see how I can serve someone in the church. We don't have time, we don't have time, we don't have time. We have the time. What will you use your time with? That's the way. How will you steward your time? When will we stop complaining about the status and who have taken over the hen house and instead start fighting back? I want to end on a note of hope and gratitude. It's easy to look at your circumstances. It's very easy to look at your circumstances and in a moment of ingratitude, throw your hands in the air and give up. And by and large, the church has waved the white flag. Okay? Many Christians feel hopeless right now and we've waved the white flag. That's what we've done. We've just said, okay, we surrender, we give up. Instead of using as an opportunity to do something, we've just given up. People today are desperate, but the issue is we're desperate for the wrong things. We're desperate for the lockdowns to end. We're desperate for more money, more influence, more Facebook likes and shares, those of us who are left on Facebook anyway. (laughs) Um, Some of us can, some of us some of those things are good things and helpful things, right? But if it, no doubt that's true, but if we're the if we are pots clamoring about wishing ourselves to be the potters so that we could create our own destiny, what happens when it doesn't go as planned? What happens? What happens when things do go the way that you sh- you think they should go? Here's a little secret the quickest way to find an idol is to gauge how you respond if that particular thing is taken from you. That's how you find an idol. Something you've worshipped more than Christ, something that you've elevated more than the gospel. You want to find what an idol is? Take it away and see how you feel then. How do you feel? Be it a president, a social media account, whatever, a job, name it. Whatever it is, whatever drives you to fear and despondency and insecurity and mouthing off to the potter, whatever drives you there is the idol that you must root out. So do we cry out to God for deliverance or do we insist on our own way? Desperation is the mother of revival. Desperation is the mother of revival. And right now, speaking of the Exodus, the church isn't desperate enough. We're not desperate enough. The Red Sea, we're standing there. It doesn't look all that deep. We look back. Pharaoh's army is like a couple miles. We got time to chill. That's what we think. We're not desperate enough. Perhaps we can kick back, relax. But if you want to know what God is doing in the world, look no further than our passage here. God is molding. God is extending his mercy. And he is hardening hearts. And he's doing it all with the authority of the potter. And the job of the clay is to stop murmuring and be grateful and be shaped into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Amen. Father, there's so much truth to be mined from your word. So much truth that we could spend hours and days upon days mining and chipping away and, and seeing what's in the caves of your truth. And I pray, Lord, that while we could learn so much, I pray that that means that we don't just walk away and not learn anything. Um, we want to find comfort in your word, we want to find truth in your word, and we certainly want your, your son to be glorified in our lives. So I pray for all of us here individually Corporately, as a church, um, for our families, our marriages, our parenting, our kids, God, would you would you bless our efforts, um, but only to the degree that we will glorify you with it. The last thing we want is to be a bunch of retreatists, and the last thing we want is to 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 run and hide. Uh, Father, we we're here, we stand, we glorify you in this moment. I pray for our meal and our fellowship time. Uh, would you be honored in it?